Hello and welcome to A Living Loss, the art of losing and finding yourself. I'm your host, psychotherapist and author, Julia Samuel. Sometimes change arrives abruptly in our lives and we can completely lose our sense of identity and place in the world. A breakup, losing your job, a global pandemic, or a health diagnosis are all changes that make us grieve for our former existence. I call these living losses. In each episode, I will call on my 30 years of experience as a grief psychotherapist to explore what my guests have learned from the first loss they can remember to the one that changed everything. In this episode, I am joined by the wonderful Adwa Aboa. Our chat was incredibly special to me. I felt like we went to so many places in our conversation and I took an enormous amount from it. And I hope you do too. Here's Adwa. Adwa. I'm so happy to see you. I know, and I'm so happy to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you so, so much for joining me. And mm-hmm. um, shall I introduce you officially first? Okay, you can introduce me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, today's guest on A Living Loss is model, activist and thought leader Adwa Aboa. Being a thought leader at 28 is pretty amazing in my... When I was 28, I was like flapping around, you know, doing nothing. So that's pretty amazing. But anyway, um, Adwa is one of the most photographed women in the world and has been named a next generation leader by Time magazine. I mean, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Unreal. You're what gassing you me up doing? today. Look, I'm literally... <laughs> if, if anyone could see me, they'd see me like flicking my... My favorite yeah, ponytail flip, right flick. now. Mm-hmm. They're looking very beautiful, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, she is a contributing editor to Vogue and last year was named on the power list of the most influential black British people across all industries. She's a leading voice in destigmatizing discussions around mental health, elevating and advocating for women's voices both on and offline, and generously sharing her own experiences to help others feel seen, heard and understood that is an amazing thing that really is an amazing thank thing thank you julia that's so nice i love my introduction there is more in 2015 Adwa launched an organization for young women called girls talk which i have been lucky enough to be a guest on um which has become an absolute phenomenon with a weekly podcast and a series of global events which help women and girls around the world and actually it includes boys and men doesn't it um, mm-hmm. come together in a safe space to discuss mental health and well-being. So it's my great pleasure to welcome you to A Living Loss. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Julia. Thank you so much. So I, I feel so happy that we're having time together. And, you know, I've been reading you and, and listening to you. And the sort of biggest thing that struck me is how unbelievably courageous you've been in showing your own vulnerability in order to model for other people to dare to speak about their mental health I mean that is not an easy thing to do and 
you know, I just wonder what that's been like for you and and what kind of motivated you to dare to put your head above, you know, the, the, the waterline and say, listen, I've had problems too. Thank you so much, Julia. I think I didn't really think about what I was doing when I first shared my story, to be quite honest. I think I just got off. I just got asked the right questions and I think, you know, I think I'd been through, I'd been through a rough time and I, I'd, I hadn't necessarily been doing the work, which is why it went from like worse to good to then worse. And then after the kind of, the, the like serious rock bottom, I was like, I really got to start changing my, the way I do things and the way I, my relationship with my emotions and and my relationship with honesty and vulnerability, you know? And these were things that I'd been taught at treatment, but I was still very opposed to. I was like, this is rank. <laughs> to be quite honest, I was like, I do not want to hold hands with any of you. And I really don't want to talk about my emotions. And these were coping mechanisms, you know, these were the things that I taught myself to protect myself. And I taught myself these things from like age 13. So it was really hard to start kind of, you know, my counsellors at treatment was just like, you'd come in one day and you'd share all these things and then you'd come in the next day and you'd be furious at us. You'd resent us for making you share all these things that you felt were so shameful. And when I first, uh, when I first shared my story, I think... They asked me the right questions and I was also, again, quite exhausted about hiding so much and, and being so closed off. And so I just kind of, I shed it. I shed the, like, the rucksack of shit, to be quite, you know. And I think I didn't really know know what I was doing and I didn't really know what the effect would be on other people and what me sharing my story would mean for other people. And I think I'm really glad I didn't know because I came at it with a very, it was authentic, my approach to it. You know, it wasn't because everyone started caring about mental health and I was like, I need to care about mental health. You know, this is something that's been part of my life for a long time and and the activism and the conversation around mental health came before my career, if you get what I mean. So I think it felt right. And I just think, I say this a lot, but I think it's such an amazing thing that that I was able to share my story that was so traumatic and so scary. And I had so much shame surrounding lots of different elements of it. But from doing that, I was... I was introduced to an amazing community of people who literally felt exactly the same as me. So I just think that's mad that you you do something that's so frightening and you're literally like, oh yeah, look at all these people, you know, that came out of the woodwork and they were like, we had no idea, you you always seemed like you had your shit together, you always seemed so happy. I was like, in parts I was, but I was just like crumbling, you know? I mean, it's, there's so many things that you said um, I mean, it, just in, in that last piece, that aspect of ourselves that we most kind of loathe and feel ashamed of ourselves, that we spend years building up walls to defend against, mm. 
it's so extraordinary that that is transformative that when you actually drop the walls and you show people what you most don't like about yourself you find you actually get the connection and the the warmth and the self-esteem that you've kind of wanted all along and longed for but thought that nobody would ever like so there's that sort of extraordinary paradox but the other thing I'm really aware of is that it's such a long-haul process it's not like you know, I, you you had a, a crisis, which I, I, I'd love to hear, or not love to hear about, I'd be really um, interested to hear about. And that you can go in phases of the process of adjusting to it, can't you? Mm-hmm. You can kind of like, the first thing is awareness and kind of recognising, shit, I can't carry on like this. Yeah, Something, asking for help, exactly. But then the... You can stop at any point and not progress and not grow because you can you can all the old behaviours and defences that you've kind of wired so early can be so they can be such grippy things, can't they? Mm-hmm. They can really mm-hmm. hijack your your healing, I guess. Exactly. And I think you start transferring, you know, we talk about that a lot in the rooms and it was like, you know, suddenly it's love and suddenly it's like you know, I was like, start shoplifting for a bit. I, mean, I have no idea why I was doing that. Mental. But, you know, it was just anything to... It's avoiding the pain, no? Like, you're putting your head down. It's like you can remember the, the pain. It's like anything not to feel it. Yeah, and it was like oblivion. It was something, it was just something that wasn't... You know, i go to meetings and, you know, my counsellors would be like, you you know... You just sit in the back and you don't put your hand up and you don't share and you look like you're like half asleep and you're on your phone. I just was adamant that I could do it my own way because I'd been doing it my own way for so long. And I also think, you know, I I started self-harming. You know, I hadn't self-harmed before that. These were things that just came in. You know, I got a bit weird with food. It was just, it was just endless, you know. And it was because I was... I really thought I could do it my own way. And it's it, you're so right about it going through many different phases because when I got there, I was like, I never want to go back to that. And really since then, I've just been this complete like word vomit, like open book, you know, even though, you know, it's different with you because we know each other, but there are many times in my life where I've had an interview and I'm like, I'm not going to talk about those things anymore. And it's like, it's just in me to just let it all out because I think I spent so long being so secretive. It was so, I was such a, and I don't mean a liar about, you know, obviously I lied about my drugs and everything like that, but like I was a liar about my emotions. I was a liar because I was always saying I was fine and like smiling and having a good time. And then just inside, just like, oh, I feel awful all the time. Yeah. That AA thing is fine, is fucked up, insecure, neurotic and emotional. It's mm-hmm. just, so, you know, I'm fine, <laughs> I'm absolutely fine. But I was picturing you kind of in the room at the back and I'd have been quite intimidated by you because you'd have looked cool, you'd have looked like you kind of <laughs> didn't want anything to do with me. Like I was this boring person kind of mm. trying to... Because I do have a resting bitch face, <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> no, I don't mean like that, but just that you are kind of cool. And so it would have been... And it reminds me, like, as a therapist, like, the more front somebody put on, puts on, the more they're hiding in the back. Yes. And yeah. it's really hard to re- remember that when you're with people who are kind of 
really look like they're they're kind of so cool and so distant and so kind of not wanting to connect um and then that creates that horrible cycle that you don't get met because exactly. people do stand back from you um, and i think they do stand back from you which is difficult but then also what's amazing is what i actually worked really well with was and this is no like kind of attack on my mum, but it's like I worked really well with a a different approach to emotion and sensitivity. Like, I think that's why I was so, that, you know, the, the progress of my journey was about kind of what I'd been given by the women throughout that journey. And I really wanted and in many ways to like give back and, you know, all sorts of things. But like the things that really like kind of got through to me were like my therapists or certain women in my group who were older than me, who really kind of like took me under their wing. That was something that really worked well with me. And obviously my mum is very loving, um, but it was a you know, we've spoken about it, so my mum's not going to be shocked. You know, we just, she, we we had a different approach to emotion. It wasn't until I went through what I did that that we all started, like, having a different dialogue around it. So before that happened, I was, it was something about an older figure understanding what I was going through and giving me that space and that the affection that I needed when I shared about those things. So it was like, you know, yeah, it was really nice. Those were the things that really worked well, I think. It's, and it sounds like their response to you, that ability to connect to you, kind of met you. And it's so interesting in families, isn't it? Your mum really loves you, you really love your mum, but sometimes there's a, a, dis a dislocation of the types of people that you are more sensitive, less sensitive, mm -hmm. different ways of dealing with difficulty. And thank goodness that you could go and find your own, the, you know, the, the maternal affection that you needed that then allowed you to have better conversations with your mum. But for people listening who don't know your story, what is, what was the sort of, maybe this is the question of the living loss. What is your first living loss that you can remember? What's, is that the same thing? I, I don't know. I think there are two, and I was really trying to pinpoint them. I think boarding school was a big one. Boarding school was... I still find it hard, boarding school. I, I've, I have let go of it, of my relationship around it and what it kind of and how it affected me, but it was pretty... It wasn't great, you know? And so I think... Boarding school, I'd say, was one. I'll go into it. And then I'd say I was kind of being like... And I think also... Yeah, let's start with boarding school. Because I think that's, that's, the, that's the start of it all, to be quite honest. So I think... And it was my choice to go to boarding school. But I had this very kind of... Rose-tinted view of what it was going to be like. So and books, school books, you know, black, yeah. And you know. I thought it was like a new start, it was like a new identity, it was new friends. And I was really sporty, so like you know, Millfield felt like a, a great place. And I, I was just, I was ready, 
for, for, you know, I had outgrown my school. I hadn't outgrown my friends and they are still the friends that I have now, which is amazing. But I had outgrown the school. And so, you know, my parents felt like Millfield was the right place. And after going round it, I was like, oh, wow, this looks amazing. And there's so many different, maybe not different, but there's lots of people here. It was a massive school. And as soon as I got there, I was just like, mm-mm, this is not for me. I'm too far from home. I miss London and the the energy and the vibe that surrounds London and the people who are from London. I love that I had friends who were older than me, younger than me. I miss my sister. I missed getting on the bus home from school. I missed getting the tube from Hammersmith to Westbourne Park. I missed seeing my parents on the weekend. I missed going to galleries and and walked around the park and... I missed all of that stuff and I think I felt so far away from it. It sounds like you missed your tribe and your hood, your kind of where mm-hmm. you belonged. Exactly. And it sounds like you felt like you were thrown onto an alien planet where you didn't belong, where you felt completely marginalised in some way. You didn't know who you were in this place. And it wasn't, it was, do you know what, so exactly, and it was like, I thought boarding school was going to be this new identity, but actually, I lost it. I went <laughs> to that school and I was I lost everything that I loved about myself. You know, I look back at pictures before I went to boarding school. I had like fuzzy braids and I wore, you know, my mum kind of was quite strict about our dress, our um, school uniform and, you know, but it was great. I didn't give a shit because my friends didn't care either. I had really popular friends. I had geeky friends. I had, you know, I was mute and very shy, but I was surrounded by an amazing community of people who I felt very loved by. And I think, you know, I've, I had, so I have still have like maybe two friends from Millfield who I, I love very much, but I think it was loss of self, to be quite honest. I just was like, it was boys and it was, oh, there were so many things. And I was like, I'm not even interested in these things, to be quite honest. And it's suddenly like, you can't dress like that. There were so many rules and regulations. And I was like, I, I just, I couldn't take it. It was too much pressure. And, and then you start adapting to that environment and you start changing not because you're growing up, but because you feel like you have to change to suit the environment that you're in. And that's not, it's a horrible feeling. And, you know, thank God, shout out to Mrs. Orton, because if I hadn't been in Southfield House, I, it would have been an even worse situation. But she really, I mean, I think I had the worst attendance on my first year of Millfield because I just never went in and she just allowed me to do my thing. She was so kind and again going back to that kind of that different side to to motherly affection that's what she was and I think you know she we had very strict exeat rules at Millfield and I and she just let me go home whenever I wanted but because I was adapting to that new environment I was leaving my other environment and for a bit, I felt very detached from my friends at back in London, you know. 
I didn't feel like I fitted in and I feel like I had to detach from them to fit in there. I couldn't do both, you know. I got, as you were speaking, I had this kind of surge of fear in my body, like mm. like shaky. Like, you, you know, when you said I lost myself, it's like you lost the core of who you were and then you were driven by fear to try and adapt and become this full self to fit in in this strange place that you didn't want to. And, you know, we know from psychology research that the core of our sort of self-esteem and and belief in ourselves comes from our different identities. And the, the key of identities is to love and to belong. And it sounds like there is this kind of devastating schism between your kind of core set of identities of who you were um, that then kind of left you with nothing, this sort of false, empty self mm-hmm. that didn't have love and affection and belonging in it. It had this kind of space and fear in it. Exactly, and I think it happened quite quickly and I was I was in a lot of shock. I was like, really? Braids aren't cool? I've never really even thought about that. I didn't even think my hair was an issue. You know, the shoes I wear, what well, that's a problem now. I didn't think that was an issue either. I've got to, like, hem my skirt and make it really short. I mean, I had friends at school back in London who did that, but I never thought it was a problem that I didn't do that. You know, it was one thing after, after another. another. Oh, I've got sideburns, or I don't fancy that boy, or, oh, God, I've got to straighten my hair. It was just endless, and I couldn't... I was just like, this is exhausting. And then I just shrunk it felt really debilitating and I think I really don't remember ever not I was shy but I didn't not like myself and I suddenly started not liking being me and I didn't want to be I just wanted to be like the girls that were suddenly it was all about being attracted by people that's what because, you know, that's what happens when you're growing up. You know, I speak to loads of girls in my in the Girls Talk community. It's like your world opens up when you turn 18 and, and, you know, from then on. And those things feel really trivial. But, like, when you're, which is why, you 13. know, the big and the small, when you're 13, it's like, okay, I get my validation from the attraction of others. Okay. If I'm not... Is this boys? If, if they yeah, if they're not attracted to me, then... Who am I? I'm yeah. not... Am I attractive? <laughs> I can see this kind of... It's a lot. It's, I mean, I had this image of this sort of sword cutting this central part of you that just annihilated you. And to some extent, because we've only got a short time and I want to hear everything... What was the worst part of that? So what did that, so what's the second loss that that was that the second loss that that led to or Yeah, the second loss was loss of self once again, you know. It was loss of a you know, I got sober, so I mourned a life and I grieved a life that I couldn't be part of anymore. You know, I figured out a new way of being part of it, but for a long period of time I went back to that person who felt like they didn't have an identity, you know? And so getting sober and and being, you know, not wanting to be on this planet anymore and actually, you know, 
you know, trying to kill myself. It was it that was again another loss of self. I was just like I had no idea who I was. Absolutely no idea. And I think it then got really difficult because I think I felt so you know, there weren't that... You know, a lot of my friends are sober now, so we have a little bit of um, a community. But at that point, you know, I was... I was 22. I've been sober a long time now. Yeah. And so it was... And I don't think the... You know, sobriety... Mental health always came first. You know, sobriety was a way that I... I kept all those feelings... kind of underneath... I'm not saying I didn't have, you know, drug problems, but, like, mental health has always been, you know, this is the thing that I battle with, you know, sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes on a weekly basis, you know. I don't really think about, um, you know, drugs or alcohol anymore. It doesn't... It's... I mean, I think those of us, and I wish more people knew this, that the link between mental health and addiction is so high. Mm-hmm. You know, so between 40 and 75% of people who are addicts have suffered trauma. And so the idea of thinking about addiction isn't thinking about, you know, what's your drug? It's like, where's the pain? What is hurting? What's the root of the pain? And that you have mm-hmm. to go to the root of what is hurting because the drug is really only there to block the pain, is to anaesthetise against the pain. Exactly. Um, but it... I mean, just the shock of hearing you say the pain got so bad, you just couldn't bear it anymore, that you attempted to take your own life. I mean, that is, that's excruciating. That's unlivable, unbearable pain that you got that bad. I mean, it was, oh, it was so painful, but it was also quite, which is weird, quite calm. That's scary, though. I don't... do you know how scary is that? It was almost like... That's, I think, when I think back at, you know, at that to that time and even to that day every now and then, you know, it felt... I think that was what was so scary about it. I went about that day in a very normal way. It was very... It was mundane, you know. I didn't... I woke up, I watched TV, I got ready, I brushed my teeth, I washed my face, I had a shower... I tidied my room, you know. I went about it a very... It was a normal day, but that was what was very scary about it. I had completely... I had given up. There's no... I was so tired, and I think... I thought, you know, when I came back from treatment, you know, that's why there were many different stages of kind of... Getting it all back together and piecing it all together was because I just I wanted so badly to to be to belong. You know, it goes back to school. It all links up. It's like yeah, it's I wanted line. I wanted to belong again, and I think I didn't feel like you know we were younger, so I had lots of friends who understood, but I had lots of friends who didn't, and they were like, "Well, you're going to be sober forever. Are you better now?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course I'm better." You know. So let me pour, let me get the timeline. So you went into treatment, you got yeah. sober, and that kind of ice cold day that you'd stopped fighting for life in a way. You'd gone to this kind of altered state where everybody disappeared. And one of the um, 
ways of understanding suicide is it's like a heart attack of the brain. It's like all the feeling part of your brain just mm-hmm. had was kind of disappeared. You are you are William Styron really explains yes. it very well. It's like a I think he he talked about it being like a hot room. But yours sounded cold. Yeah, mine mine did sound cold for sure. Yeah. You are how old? Two thousand and fourteen, twenty two. Yeah, I think I was twenty two. I interrupted you. So, can I drop you back into what you? I just needed some clarification. Oh yeah, so I'll give you the timeline. Treatment Arizona for a few like two months. Back in London, start to stop, halfway house, but primary treatment again. Did that. Very hard being back in London. Tried to go back and do my master's at university, even though I was told (laughs) that wasn't a good idea. Again, trying to do it my own way. That didn't go well. Relapsed, was allowed back in to start to stop then was in start stop tried to commit suicide in start stop was found thank god was in hospital coma 5 days oh out my of coma god, yeah out of coma in hospital for another week oh my god sectioned at capio oh, capio yeah. two weeks back to yeah capio back to start stop oh I mean, you were so nearly died. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is it? I feel trembly. Is it still hard remembering, or does, or do you kind of look at yourself from a distance like that was a different you? I look at my yeah. I think if I ever get upset about it, it's because I I feel really sorry for that person. Yeah. But I don't feel like I am that person anymore. No. So it's it's in a which is amazing, you know. That is amazing. But oh my god. I yeah, but I feel you know I definitely feel very sorry for that person, and I also keep her very close. You know, she's not far away, because she reminds me and she shows me about how far I've come. So I, I keep her close, but she's not. You know, she doesn't rule my life anymore because that feels so important doesn't it because there was the adapted kind of broken identity that was formed at boarding school but this very wounded very um, broken child in a way is part of you so that isn't someone that you want to jettison that she's she's going to inform and influence you like she's a very sensitive, important part of you, mm-hmm. shaping you, what you do, who you are, your openness. Exactly. Going forward. That's I why mean, she's. That's yeah. why she's close because she is everything. I thought I hated about myself that sensitivity, that that empathy that made it so overwhelming. You know that felt like the world was, like, too much sometimes. You know, it was like I felt like I was just carrying other people's stuff. But actually, you know, I love that stuff now. It's the, it's the reason why I do girls talk. It's the, it's the reason why I'm not frightened of conversations that 
are still so stigmatised and still seemed as as taboo. I, I meet all those things with, with confidence, actually. I step up, you know, whether it be for a friend or, or anyone. Death, pain, happiness, you know. I might not always understand, but that doesn't frighten me either. It's, I mean, it's so moving to hear how you've shifted and also that you've integrated the most vulnerable, kind of sensitive version of yourself. And in allowing her, that allows the feisty, gritty, kind of punchy you that was there before mm-hmm. to kind of come out to play, that you can, have, you can really allow yeah. the full extent of yourself to to stand up and represent things that really matter to you and speak for yourself, speak for others, connect to others in all the different places that matter. Is this the biggest... So my second question is always, what is the sort of life-defining living loss that you experienced? Is that what it was that when you tried to kill yourself? Yeah, I think I didn't think I was actually going to use that one, but it, it again, you asked the right questions and it felt like it led on quite naturally from boarding school and I'm quite I analyze quite a lot. I've done a lot of therapy and I like I feel safe in piecing it all together. I don't obsess yeah. over it. Sometimes it gets obsessed, you know, obsessive, but like I like piecing it together um and understanding. But I actually thought I was going to talk about a relationship because I think that also is loss of self sometimes. Tell me, I'm not limiting you. Yeah, I think a relationship that I've been in for a long time from, you know, age 17, 18 till about, for about six, six years with a little bit of a break. And I think, I think again, you know, I was talking about like, you know, I was thinking about the idea of, like, grief, and I think you grief, you grieve, sorry, like, you grieve what could have been and and the possibilities that could have been by being with that person. And I think that's, that is, that is really painful. And I think you, it's a loss of a life as you knew it, but that's the same as, as you know, getting sober and, and, and you know, that rock bottom of not wanting to be on this planet. And I think it was hard because when you lose that, it feels like you've lost like a a limb, I think. And I think what happens is then you close yourself off. And that was hard because I'd worked so hard not to be like that. To be open and then you cauterise again. Yeah, and that's taken me a long time, you know, a long time, I'd say, because I just, I've always, since then I've just had one foot in, one foot out, just in case. Anticipated fear of rejection, that's what my therapist says sometimes. It's because I'm just, yeah, terrified that I might get rejected. And so that's taken a long time to be like, again, it's a different side of vulnerability. You know, I can do it in other aspects and, and realms, other realms of my life. But when it comes to like love, I think terrified of being vulnerable. Um, so I give bits, 
not everything, but parts. And so, yeah, you close off and, and you close off your heart. And I think that's a difficult one. Yeah. But... I mean, it sounds so painful. And I, and I think a breakup is often not recognised at the level of loss that it is. I mean, what you're talking about is real grief. Grief of the who you were with this person, with the future that you pictured. and But also, once you know that a relationship when you really love someone can end and break up, you can't not know it. And it sounds like for mm-hmm. you, the, the process of healing is daring to trust, daring to put two feet in, because the kind of imprint of the wound of that ending is still very large in you and you can show someone little aspects of yourself but full intimacy jumping in with all of you is like too frightening and so that's a that's that's an incredible incredibly painful process and also it's a kind of vicious circle isn't it because you can't be fully met on by someone really loving you unless you meet them fully on. So it's sort of like your shadow dancing mm-hmm. all the time, waiting for, waiting to see for the evidence, like I'm never going to be hurt again. Mm-hmm. And it's the same paradox as when, you, you know, we all default to our original coping mechanism. You shut down a little bit, but it's only when you fully opened up that you got met. And it's the same in our intimate sexual loving relationship exactly because you know it's complicated it's so complicated and I you know my last relationship it was the same like I said my counsellors you know used to say to me every single morning I would come back with a different attitude and an emotion I'd be closed off I'd be open and you know he said I just never know what I'm going to get from you I never know if you're going to be loving or if you're going to be detached and and distant and but I think but all of you needs to be allowed to dance right yeah a hundred percent and I think it you know I think in the beginning the first breakup I didn't let go my counsellors were like you really got to let go of this this is gonna be so important to what happens next and I didn't and I don't regret that because I was able to it was like probably another year and a bit of our relationship but I let go pretty quickly I think but it just took me a long time to start it took me long to heal but I knew it was done you know I mean, what I'm thinking of is, you know, how relationships end, like how people die, has a massive influence on how you grieve. And I don't believe in closure or letting go. I think, like, as these relationships live on in us. And it sounds like part of the paradoxical theory of healing for you is allowing yourself to love that person and know that it's ended and that the reality of the relationship is over, but also take the strength of that you knew how to love and you can take that with you into future relationships rather than the fear into future relationships. Exactly, and I think how beautiful that I was able to like love like that. Yeah. 
you know, it was young, so it was very, it was dramatic at times. It was sometimes toxic. I think it won't be like that the next time, which is great. I've learned a lot, but mad. It was great. It was overwhelming. It was stunning. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, it's like fun. a soap opera. It was so fun. You know, I had a great time and I think remember that hold on to that exactly but that's what I mean it teaches you and I know that's your next question but I think what it does is I really know what I'm deserving of all this all these different points where I have lost myself like you said that fiery gritty person it's like she can be quite cutthroat but she yeah. just ruthless ruthless because it's like i know i've 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 worked so hard to know who i am mm-hmm. and i feel today you know after especially the year we've all been through the year and a bit we've been through i know myself even better to be quite honest and you i had think time with yourself yeah for the first time in a long time you know because then i went straight into work and that was my my thing and I think you're not going to settle for anything and it's possible that all these things are possible again I think I'd also almost given up on this idea that it was going to be a full love you know maybe I'm not intimate anymore maybe I'm not sexual anymore I am all those things actually of course it's the person it's the right person it's like what you said Julie it's about meeting it with openness that's where it all becomes, you know, mega and magic and all the rest. And daring. Mm-hmm. I think it's daring. And also, good relationships are made. They don't... I don't think there's their soulmate. I think good, long relationships are the thing that matters to us most in the world and predict our health and happiness and outcomes. But they, they don't just arrive, Mm-mm. you know, like in the movies. They're really hard work. Really hard work. But it takes honesty. I mean, I, I can imagine mm-hmm. you being madly... and be, I mean, you so deserve to be madly loved. I can just... I can't wait to see you smiling, madly loved. Mm-hmm. That would be such a lovely... I mean, I can see you actually almost in now. Like, you look like you, you're not far off being madly loved. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely gassed. <laughs> yes, I got it. I got it. You're so annoying. You got it. I, I like... am so good. I'm so bloody good. I gotcha. <laughs> so funny. I was really trying to give you a low key. No, I mm. read faces. Mm-hmm. I read faces. So funny. I so want to go on talking about that, but can we switch to something completely different, which is your black and white British heritage and uncomfortable conversations um, about race. And it's so interesting for me what's happening with Black Lives Matter, because when I did my training kind of 30 years ago, you know, there were sections on race. And then I kind of thought, like everybody, I'm not racist. I'm a good person. I I know my stuff. You know, I don't do horrible things. And thanks to Black Lives Matters, and I feel incredibly grateful, but also uncomfortable 
I, I've recognised in the last kind of five years that I'll never learn. I have to go on learning, that I have to kind of recognise my own racism. I'm not white and good. I lived in a different world. I navigated the world without any barriers because I was part of the majority and the white majority. And when I work with clients, and I've always done this, I kind of say, when we meet, our histories meet. And there are very complex histories, very different histories when I meet with a black client. And that every lens of difference between me and the person opposite me is a lens of misunderstanding. And what I used to say, and I, I was, so if I say something insensitive, I get it wrong, tell me. And now I'm more thinking like, no, it's not your job to tell me. It's my job to kind of catch myself and call myself out. But I can, you know, I feel nervous even talking about it because I, I don't feel confident anymore because I constantly feel like I'm going into a place that I can never fully know. And I want to be in that place. And also I quite want to skedaddle and hide behind a door. Completely. And I think it's, it's a state of change and relearning. And it's like you said, Julie, it's so uncomfortable. But I think we've all had to step into that kind of uncomfortable place because we've all been too safe, you know. We haven't been having the chat. We haven't been having the conversation, honestly. And I think that's why we've been stuck. And and it's like learning a new language, really is i'm learning a new a new language you know as a black i've never woman. really a hundred percent i never spoke about these things and i think it's taken me you know with the resurgence of black lives matter last year i had a little i knew i wanted to speak about it but i had so much processing to do around my identity coming from both black and white from feeling very othered and not really understanding what that meant, not feeling black enough, not feeling white enough. And I think I had to really think about it. And also this idea that I felt that my place, this, this, this element of power and this, this, this platform that I've been given has always felt quite... That you've made, to be honest. Yeah, and I have made it, but I felt it... I felt it, it it sometimes feels quite unstable. It feels quite, I don't want to rock the boat, you know? I'm, I'm outspoken, but there are things that I've kept to myself because it sometimes feels like that, that, you know, we've, we've spoken about this idea, you know, I think that's what, what's been so great about the conversation surrounding race. It's not about just calling someone the N-word. It's, it's an en- it's an en- energy. It's an it unspoken energy. And I think, you know, there have been many times that I felt like I'm lucky to be here. And that really isn't the case. And I think I have... It's been so great. There have been times where I've not felt that I belong in either one. But actually, I do, and it's been so amazing to really figure out my community, my black community, because I my experiences are are, and also my biracial community as well, you know. Where and and one a biracial community that's grown up in privilege is all, you know, also. 
classes. Who's, you know, exactly, who's gone to private school, who's, you know, all these things. Those experiences, those shared experiences are amazing because I don't have to explain myself. It's a knowing. It's the same with anyone who's been through, had problems with mental health. It's just, it's a knowing. It's like I can see it and I don't need to explain it and we get it. And it, it's the same with those things. It's the same with talking about hair or the the amount of times I've been like, why do you speak like that? You know, when people are like, why? You're so posh. You're so white for a, a black girl. You know, it's these things, these microaggressions. We suddenly start, we're like, you've had that. I've had that. What has that done? You know, how has that it chipped away every so often at our, our identity and who we were and... It kept us silent. So although I've been very outspoken in other places in my life, that has always felt like something that I've kept stem on, you know? It's like, I'm not ready to talk about it. But also, yeah, but I'm I'm slowly but surely talking about it more. I, I again, am more and more cutthroat about who I give my energy to, you know. I'm happy to explain to people and and I don't necessarily, but not all the time, and I'm not going to share it with you if you are not going to listen. But I'm also... I'm not going to take things that make me feel bad and stop me from, like, that important progress that... I'm still on, you know, progress of my life and my happiness and all that stuff. It's like, I've had a, I had a few situations last year and I was like, I'm not taking this shit anymore, actually. Good for you. I mean, You I... make me feel shit and I'm not going to be made to feel shit about something no. I can't change, you know, and something that I love and something that I would feel so... I feel so disrespectful to, like, my father and my my the other side of my family and my sister and my community, if I didn't tell you that that Speak is literally out. not on, you know? And it sounds like such a, an important process of loss in a way, like the loss of fear in staying quiet and not knowing what you think, but in the process of kind of recognising that you had to find where you belong in both of your identities, both mm-hmm. your white and your, your black identity, and that you that you needed to do that on your own initially and kind of find privately and then gently, step by step. It sounds like it's a kind of emerging confidence mm-hmm. where you, you can own your black identity mm-hmm. that acknowledges your white identity. Mm-hmm. And speaks in both places and and has the confidence. And I think this is the difficult thing often. I mean, a lot of it, all of that's difficult, which isn't a hierarchy, but calling it out when you can be seen as difficult or angry or mm-hmm. and sh- people feel shamed and they're defensive. That takes so much courage and I'm so kind of proud of you and I hope I do. I mean, I hope that I can learn from you and everyone else to do it more because I find that really hard. It is. And, you know, I felt like a late, you know, an alien again last year. And and because I was really... 
What happened? I just, I just, I, I was, I just didn't understand. I felt, I was rethinking it all, and I think was this during quite, the resurgence in? Mm, yeah, and I felt like there were conversations I was having with, you know, all different types of people that were quite heartbreaking because I was like, you really don't understand, and not only do you not understand, you're not willing. To understand, so that's quite heartbreaking, you know, because these are people that mean a lot to you, and you have to just form a different relationship with them. It's like I don't not love you, but you look sad. Yeah, it's weird. You look sad, like you lose something, don't you? You lose. Yeah, you do. It's another loss. It's another loss, to be quite honest, because I think you can't go back when you start. When these things, you know. You start processing these things. You can't again. You can't go back. You're like, I know too much now. <laughs> you can never go back. I mean, life has changed, yeah. and you, you, you can't know what you now know. Can't not know what you now know. Yeah, but I've had a lot of friends and and family who've really stepped up, and and I can have the conversation with, and I found a new you know, a new group of friends as well who I can have those conversations with, which is great, but it's... it's so you're growing. Yeah, 100%. And I think there was always, you know, we're not there yet. There are many times where I'm like, oh, I really can't be bothered to be seen as, like, the angry black woman, you know, in work. There's an element of change going on there. I've, you know, so I've grown good. my hair out. You know, I sit in that chair and I do not want to sit in that chair and feel uncomfortable about the fact that my hair is the way my hair is. So that, you know, standing up for that, it's, it's exhausting because you're like, do exhausting. I really have to explain this every time? You know, there's that biological sh- um, research about sustained racism. Do you know about that, about weathering? No. So there's some research that shows that sustained racism, sus- I can't say the word, sustained racism activates your cortisol levels. And it weathers the body, so you're constantly on alert. So your your um, biological age is older than your birth age because it kind of, as you said, it sounds exhausting. And I've I've had listened to lots of podcasts and what lots lot watch lots of documentaries, and that's what people talk about exhaustion, like, and it sounds like that weathering, just like in your cells is tired. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of representing. I'm tired of not being listened to. I'm tired of not being seen. I'm tired of having to fight. Like, you go and do the work now. Like, it's up to you lot. You white people come Because it's for all of us. It's... Yeah, and um, everyone was exhausted and triggered and, you know, the mood in my household, it suddenly, it dropped. We were all just like, we felt it. We are like, really? The mood in your household, was it the accumulated... Societal sadness, was it? I think it was like what you spoke about, the weathering, the the exhaustion. We were just like, everyone felt it. It's like, when can we not do anything right? (laughs) You know, my friend was, we were talking about relationships and she was like, the same as in relationship. I need to be easy, but not too difficult. Opinionated, but not too opinionated. Cool, but don't play it too cool. It's like, you know, text back, don't text back. She's like, I can't deal. 
for fuck's sake, just let me be me. Exactly. But, but when you talk about exhaustion, I think grief. I think mm-hmm. that exhaustion is sadness, loss, kind of facing the reality of what maybe you hasn't been in your face so much, the cost of it, the pain of it, the the waste of it, the the systemic nature of it is just feels like huge amounts of grief in in all its different forms. Mm-hmm. So do you, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel kind of, I'm the person to say, but I do feel there is change. I feel more optimistic. I mean, I see oh, much yeah. better representation on telly, in the radio, in books. There's a long way to go. But I feel something is something has finally shifted, and I hope it doesn't. I hope it's is sustained. What what's your? I think there will be many people who sustain it. Sometimes I'm quite shocked, but not really shocked, but not surprised that that they're you know in companies and brands and high powered people that they couldn't really sustain it longer than a year it's not too surprising to me but it's fine I try and I try more than ever to concentrate on what you said the changes that are happening the positives the the wins the group wins it's it's brilliant and I feel the win I feel like I'm winning to be quite honest you are and, you are Adam. yeah you are so Thank winning you. and I Looking think that beautiful face you're so <laughs> winning and I think yeah, 100% there have been changes. And I think I am I love seeing what's going on, to be quite honest. I love Me too. that these, the conversations happening are so nuanced and so there are so many different layers to them. And we're not just looking at them as, as you know, in this black and white way anymore. And that's why we take to the streets and we talk about just all the little bits that make it what it is. I love it because it's all very complicated. So complicated. And that's why I'm, I'm, and you know, whatever anyone says, you know, we wouldn't have necessarily done this if we hadn't been sitting at home. Thank God then, you know, thank God we're, we're, we've been able to pay attention and we've been able to all have maybe hopefully a moment of self-reflection and have been able to think about what's important you know obviously that is definitely a privilege and I know not everyone has had that time but for those of us who have to take stock mm-hmm, exactly take stock I do that a lot at the moment and I think with everything that's happened last week was heavy you know Sarah Everard Meghan Markle, International Women's Day, you know, didn't really go that well, seeing as it was International Women's Day. But, you know, I know I, you know, I know where I stand on all those things, which is great. And I think and that's the thing I, I, I'm really learning from you as you speak is that you're in you're curious you're in the process of mm. learning and changing but you're also kind of taking your learning with you like that wounded kind of very frightened child but also many different aspects of your identity that is kind of punchy and 
funny and loving and sexy, you know, lots of aspects of you. And I guess that feels such a wonderful thing to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I was your mum and dad, I would be like bursting with pride um, because obviously, you know, I've had children that have been troubled and it, it, it's the worst thing on in the world as a parent seeing mm-hmm. your child suffer. Um, but I guess what, my last question is, and I want this to go on for hours, but um, what have you taken from the living losses? What is this kind of treasure from the things that we've talked about? What's the, if people are listening who are going through a very difficult process in their life for maybe similar reasons to you or different reasons to you, what do you think you've taken with you? What's the learning for you? A lot of things. I think mm. I've taken that it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work. And that's why I've always been a little bit repulsed by, like, if you climb the mountain, you can reach the top. No, like, the, where's the C, D, E, F, G before we get to <laughs> Z? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It stops when you die, right? Yeah, it's like it is endless and ongoing. So, but with a lot of hard work, there is light. There is just light and a just greatness, really. And I think that it's not linear, this journey, and that I have ups and downs all the time. I learn from them all the time. Can I, I have to pause you. When you talk about light... It's literally like your whole face lights up, like mm. it's a kind of flame. It's an amazing thing to see. Yeah, because I always pinch myself. I didn't know that the, all these things were possible, and they really are. So maybe that's another thing that I've learned, what's possible. And, you know, my dad always says, he, he was like, I always knew what you were capable of doing. I was just waiting for you to realise what you were capable of. God, he's the best. He's the, he's the best. I'm obsessed oh, with him. <laughs> and he, you know, oh, that makes that me, me want to, what... I know, that yeah. makes me want to cry, to be quite honest. And he, and that, I learned how to, like, get out of my own way. I learned to dive into curiosity and and being uncomfortable and fear and change you know and see what was at the other end which was there's lots of things you know and I think yeah I know what I'm capable of doing and more and more I know what I want and what I want in my life and it's not just work and it's not just there's so many great things that I've that I'm yet to even experience and that's great you know and I've learned how to talk even more and share my opinion and have empathy you know always that's one of my I'm proud of that the empathy that I'm I'm able I show up and I have, you know, empathy for not only myself, but for others around me. So I think for anyone listening, it's like, it is possible, but it's, it is hard work. But when you get there, and I think, 
I've said this to people who have broken up with loved ones or, you know, who are going through, like, distressing, like, horrible times. I don't know when it happens, but you you wake up one day and you feel a little bit lighter. I don't know when it happens, but it really does. And I just... There have been many mornings that I've woken up and I was like, yeah, I've shed something. I'm on... I'm still on that journey, but it feels... I feel lighter. And I think... Uh, at the moment, I say to myself a lot, it's like, today might be pretty shit. Hopefully, maybe tomorrow. If not tomorrow, maybe the day after that. I don't know. I have hope. Which is which, which fucking mega, to be quite honest. I didn't have that before. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hope is what keeps you alive. No? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, hope, hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. And in a way... I mean, I'd like to have five hours conversation with every word that you said, but the impression it gave me is the holding both, that you have to face the dark and allow yourself to feel the pain and do the work, which is harder and takes longer than, and nobody bloody wants it. All of us resist it. I think particularly in this fast track kind of culture that we kind of think just, you know, get on with it, stop me. But when you do the work, and in a way alongside it, it releases you. Like the paradoxical theory of change, that by allowing yourself to feel the pain is how you heal. Mm-hmm. And through the healing, you have hope and curiosity and the connection and capacity to love and enjoy the day. And, you know, everyone's lives is snakes and ladders. Mm-hmm. It, you, it, you, it, you know, happiness isn't a place you arrive. It's It's joys in the moment on different days um but by guess what you're also saying is that by befriending myself by i got out of my own way but also i turned to myself with self-compassion i turned to myself with care and then that allows me to meet others with self-compassion with empathy mm-hmm. to speak up and that is an amazingly powerful feeling that you make a difference in the world i mean mm-hmm. girls talk must you must be so proud of it it's, i've heard you on lots of the podcast and you're fantastic i want to come to your events i want to come and do the stuff with you it's so inspiring is it well we hope so i hope so me too but i think it's it's what you said it's so i love seeing it in my really close relationships it hasn't just been like you just you look happier than ever it's like Years later, you know, still now, I have some great friends who are like, you look better than ever, you look happier than ever. And and that's why it takes a long time, you see that. Because you're like, it, it, it's not instant, you know. But there's reassurance, I think. You know? Yeah. It reaffirms a lot of things, you know. This year, already last year, it reaffirms that I'm just on this still on this like journey and still very much changing and learning a lot about myself and and all sorts of things which I love and it's a beautiful beautiful thing to witness to Mm. see you allowing yourself to feel the pain to do the work and growing and changing and recognizing how you intentionally live your life is Mm. what predicts your life and 
happiness isn't a, isn't a destination. It's a kind of it's part of the process. It's so lovely to see. Thanks, Julia. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. Me too. Sad in parts, but like. It's amazing what you learn from all these things that you go through. It is amazing. And thank you. What a lovely, lovely conversation, which I'm sure will help a lot of people. So I really appreciate your generosity and your openness and the way you find words for what is often very difficult to find words for. feels a very special thing. So thank you. Thank you so much, Julia. Adwa was fantastic in this episode and she was so open and there's so much that I got from her and I hope the listeners get from her. I think one of the insights for me that I think is translatable for everybody is that our level of loss is our own personal subjective experience. So not to diminish it if or sort of poo-poo it if we think we shouldn't be feeling sad or shouldn't be feeling distressed about something that we need to give ourselves permission to have the feelings that we have. My other big kind of takeaway from her is that there is less stigma around talking about mental health now but there's still a bit a big barrier to actually getting help and support and for all of you listening the sooner you access the support that you need the better you will fare psychologically. And like with Adwa, it went on for a long time before she really tried to kill herself. And at any point before that, if she'd gone to Suicide Prevention Alliance or other mental health organisations, she might have protected herself from that incredibly dangerous and devastating um, act that she had, which, thank goodness, um, she didn't die from. So I would encourage all of you to talk to people and those listening who are worried about others. We know from the research that people who talk about being suicidal need to be taken seriously, that they are more likely to take their own life. So this idea of that it's just a cry for help, um, we know that isn't necessarily the case at all. It is a cry for help, but it's a cry for help that you need to um, attend to. And that as much as in the end we have no control over the acts that someone does for their life, the more support someone gets when they're very troubled, the better their outcomes are likely to be. For those of you that might need support around preventing suicide or have been bereaved by suicide, for suicide support, I would go to supportaftersuicide.org.uk and for prevention of suicide, I would go to the National Suicide Prevention Alliance. I've listed other further organisations in the show notes if you need to know more information. Please go to these places if you need them. I have lots more wonderful guests coming up, so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast today for free wherever you get your podcasts and the latest episodes will pop into your feed once they are released. Thanks again to my wonderful guest, to my producer Sophie King at Move Sounds and to you for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>